We're switching things up this week to mark the end of summer, running some of our favorite conversations we've had since the show began. Our first interview today is with the fabulous Bob the Drag Queen, followed by a conversation with the one and only Jenny Slate. The date, September 1st, 2020. The time, news o'clock. Hey friends, I'm Hayes Brown. And I'm Casey Rackham. Welcome to BuzzFeed's News O'Clock. Okay, this week we are revisiting some of our favorite interviews we've done since we started the show earlier this year. So each day this week, we'll be bringing you two of our favorite News O'Clock conversations. Today's show kicks off with an interview from late July that we did with Bob the Drag Queen, RuPaul's Drag Race Season 8 winner and star of the HBO Max series, We're Here. Welcome back. You might know her from her stand-up special, Suspiciously Large Woman. You may recognize her as the winner of the eighth season of RuPaul's Drag Race. He stars alongside Drag Race alumna Eureka and Shangela in the HBO series, We're Here. We're honestly just thrilled to be joined by Bob the Drag Queen. Good afternoon, Bob. Hi, how are you all? Great. So on the show, you, Eureka, and Shangela visit small towns, mostly in the American South, and you adopt some local first-timers to put on a drag show. You're from Columbus, Georgia. Did any of these towns remind you of home? Um, well, to be fair, they're not, they're not most. And we do, we do, well, it also depends on what people consider the South. So we do Twin mm. Falls, Idaho, Branson, Missouri. Mm. I know a lot of um, Southerners who wouldn't call Branson, Missouri, <laughs> the South. Uh, but they but say Missouri, so I'm pretty Missouri. sure they're the South. <laughs> but we do go to Ruston, Louisiana, and uh, Spartanburg, North Carolina as well. Anyway, that's not the point. The point is, uh, I mean, I don't know if they necessarily reminded me of home because, of course, everyone has these ideas of these small towns, but then there's their small town. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like people who have the ideas of, like, what a Trump supporter is, but then there's also, like, but my parents, but they're different Trump supporters. Mm, I see you. (laughs) Like, oh, but they're different. They're not, like, your nasty Trump-supporting parents. By the way, for the record, my mom did not support Trump. Um, But... So it, it doesn't remind me of my own hometown because I see, you know, I have a much more nuanced view of Columbus, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Mm. On the show, um, there's a lot of fear and judgment in these areas, uh, especially before the drag shows. How does that compare to what you experienced in your journey to drag? Well, I started drag here in New York City. I'm mm-hmm. in Manhattan right now, to those of you listening. Um, Same. Shout out. Shout out. <laughs> where, where are you in Manhattan? East Harlem. East Harlem. I'm in Washington Heights. Boop, 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 boop. <laughs> um, well, Casey, we have to ask, where are you? Oh, I'm in Los Angeles. Los Angeles. All right. Well, I mean, no one's perfect. No one's perfect. <laughs> um, we, uh, so, you know, my, I was really surrounded by lots of amazing queer people, specifically in the queer nightlife scene. I don't even, I don't, I really don't even have that many friends who identify as straight, to be honest, or not queer at least. Um, and, but also when I came to these towns, I realized that they also had these microcosms of that as well. Like in Twin Falls, there is a vibrant, small, but still a vibrant drag community happening in Twin Falls, Idaho. So it's not just the drag show in We're Here. There are so many emotional, heartfelt scenes between friends and family members. Some of the people are having confrontations, for instance, about hardship they faced when they came out. Some are having loving conversations about how grateful they are for the support system. Had you ever been part of something like that before with this much like emotion on display and you having to help people process it? Uh, I don't know. A lot of people don't really bear. I mean, well, I will say this. Being a, a drag race girl, a lot of people do come up to you and bear their souls to you because they feel like you're, 
you had a, a hand in their happiness. And I mean, I can acknowledge that maybe I somehow encourage happiness, but I, I also like people to take, you know, ownership of their own joy. So yeah, I've had people like tell me in, intense or intimate things um, before being on, uh, we're here. Um, there are also a lot of personal transformations on the show. Were you surprised by any of them or was there one that just really impacted you the most? Well, the one that came to me a lot was uh, Tanner in Branson, Missouri, who was struggling with his uh, queer identity and his Christian identity. And he seems to really figure it out. And if you go on his um, Instagram now, she's as gay as the day is long. (laughs) And also seems a lot happier than Mm. he was when when I was there, like mm. he just, he seems to have really figured, figured himself out. So shifting gears, uh, your season was actually the first full season of RuPaul's Drag Race that I watched through as it aired. And I was high key thrilled that you took the crown. Oh, thank me too. Right. Yeah. <laughs> me too. I got to ask though, what was your favorite dumb purchase that you made after winning the hundred thousand dollars? Oh, you know, I'm really not terribly frivolous. So I don't have like a bunch of like, silly purchases but there's got to be at least one that's like all right i got the cash i i'm throwing it at this i normally would not but so we were out shopping one day and i i carry a fanny pack a lot i either carry a purse or i carry a fanny pack every day and uh, i was buying really cheap fanny packs like really really cheap fanny packs for the nylon suckers that will fall apart just like, like a week. yeah like two dollar like really cheap mm. really cheap shit and then i was out shopping with asia o'hara and kim chi they're like, you need a designer bag. And I was like, I'm just not that girl. I hear you, but that's not me. Um, anyway, they convinced me to in one day buy a Burberry fanny pack and a uh, Versace backpack. Um, so I, so those are probably my two of my most ridiculous. Yes. This is my, um, my, my fanny pack here that I carry all around a lot. She's it's gorgeous. Beautiful. <laughs> I love a lot. So you're a New York queen where the pandemic hit first and hardest. How's the drag community been coping with quarantine? Um, the answer is um, they've been adapting, but it's it's not great. I mean, one of our bars just announced today that it is, well, a few of our bars announced they weren't closing. One of our big drag bars announced it is closing the stores forever. There's a bar called Therapy here in New York City mm. that has announced that it will not be reopening after. And that really hit a lot of us. I mean, I... Yeah, I I did. I used to do shows at therapy. I worked there for I think three years. Um, and a lot of my friends worked there, and they they hire a lot of drag queens. So I'm starting to wonder like how we're gonna come out on the other side of this. Yeah, there's uh, even in LA recently. Um, I'm a queer woman, and one of our places has two monthly dance uh, shows that they put on. That's being closed because they can't have that dance space anymore because of coronavirus. And it really, it was actually, it really impacted so many people emotionally because they didn't realize and myself included how much it means to that queer community to have that space especially uh and for queer women there's there's uh queer men love to party and we'll do it really often <laughs> um and in the the queer woman space there's probably it tends to be like the party here called a hot rabbit in um in new york city that throws like a monthly or bi-monthly uh dance party whereas gay guys are like Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Thursday, <laughs> Friday, <laughs> Saturday, um, we dance. And on Sunday, we go out, but instead, we just do karaoke. Um, <laughs> because the girls got to rest. Um, <laughs> so I can understand how impactful that could be. Mm. 
So one of the things that, uh, you know, the drag community has been doing, uh, trying to adapt, has been doing a bunch of videos on Instagram and YouTube. And I know you've been doing that. You've been doing that with some of your fellow former drag racers. And in one of them in particular, you're talking with season nine runner up Peppermint and you bring up a certain article about RuPaul owning property out in Wyoming. Did you see that article from Instinct Magazine? Oh, the fracking? No, no, not that. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I remember. So, uh, did you ever get a response from uh, Mr. Charles or World of Wonder about that? Just curious. Just out of curiosity. Was... Well, I mean, RuPaul and I don't talk a lot. Um, <laughs> really? You don't, don't yeah. chat on the phone often? And RuPaul's gone, like, uh, going blank on social media altogether. I mean, I don't mm. know. I don't know what's going on with RuPaul. I know RuPaul deleted his Twitter and all the content from his um, Instagram. And I mean, I hope everything's going fine. I, I, I really hope that um, he's doing well. Fair enough. I, I tried to get you to spill some tea and instead you took a <laughs> loving sip of it. And you know what, Bob? That's why you're a queen. <laughs> oh, before we go, I want to oh, yeah. talk about something. Hit yes. me. What do you got? I'm, I'm using my platform to uh, talk about Black Trans Lives Matter as much as possible. Mm. So I would like mm. to take a, just a short moment to discuss um, the Black Trans Lives Matter movement with you all, if you don't mind. Yes, definitely. Well, I've been talking, so me and Peppermint, my, um, my, uh, my friend's <laughs> sister, um, we, we were basically calling each other and having these long discussions about like being black and being queer. And she would tell me about being a trans femme. And I, and I would talk to her about being non-binary and we created this thing called Black Queer Town Hall, which I would love to encourage everyone to go check it out. And I've just been trying to challenge people, especially, um, cis men especially black cis straight men to engage in the trans lives matter discussion it's been really on my mind a lot lately because it's it's one thing to hear me say it or to hear a, a black trans woman say it or to hear like lady gaga say it but we need to hear like uh lil wayne jay-z um, we need to have Waka Flocka Flame, Wiz Khalifa. We need to have, like, we need to have these people who have reach and access to other black cis straight men talk about the validity of black trans women. Right. We need Dwayne Wade to have some company out here. <laughs> yeah. Dwayne Wade is on a lonely island right now. And it's only because he has a trans daughter. And you shouldn't have to be that close to transness to acknowledge that the lives of trans people matter. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I do. How has this message, uh, what's the response you've gotten so far? Well, I live in a vacuum. So everyone around me is like, girl, work. Of course they matter. Yes, they do. Um, but I'm sure if you step outside of that, it, it changes a lot. I mean, I got my first taste of that when HBO tweeted out the trailer for We're Here. Because I see things on my side. Everyone's like, work, slay, mama, yes. You know what I mean? Um, but of course, when HBO does not have a an exclusively or predominantly queer fan base, so I got a rude, rude awakening. I was like, these people are, ne-, but there are people out there who still think like this, and we need to we need to access them because it is truly a lack of knowledge. You know what I mean? Anyway. No, it is. And I agree with that. I think um, now's the time to have our straight allies and more importantly, our straight advocates being out there to uh, to talk about how these issues are just issues that queer people should be talking about. You know, and I want to thank Dwayne Wade and um, Gabrielle Union. And I'm, I'm sure Gabrielle Union has a lot to do with why Dwayne Wade is on such a, is on the up and up. She really holds people accountable. And I, I love that about her. And um, 
anyway, um, like, I just want to say, like, we need more Gabrielle Unions, more Dwayne Waits out there in the world standing up for not just queer people and their family, but, like, uh, outside of that as well. Like, imagine if you gave the random person on the street the same care, love, nuance, and, you know, space that you give the people in your family. Mm. Definitely. That is so important. And you know what, Bob, thank you for sharing that with us. And thank you for being with us today. This has been a great conversation. My pleasure. Thank you. Y'all be well. It was great to revisit that interview. Since we last spoke to Bob, fellow We're Here co-stars Shangela Laquifa Wadley and Yuriko O'Hara have announced they have plans to take season two overseas and make it a truly international show. When we come back, we'll hear from Jenny Slate, so stick around. SheFit. We're tired of hearing new year, new you, fat burning secrets, and lose weight fast. The only thing you need to lose is self-doubt. The body you're in deserves respect, love, and support. Support you're not getting from your current sports bra. It's time to experience the only sports bra that actually does its job and outperforms the most popular brands on the market. It's time to feel real support from SheFit. Save $10 today at SheFit.com slash 2022. Raffi is the voice of some of the happiest songs of our generation. Baby Beluga. So who is the man behind Baby Beluga? Every human being wants to feel respected. When we start with young children, all good things can grow from there. I'm Chris Garcia, comedian, new dad, and host of Finding Raffi, a new podcast from iHeartRadio and Fatherly. Listen every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Roxanne Gay, host of the Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams. Now, what is the Roxanne Gay Agenda, you might ask? Well, it's a podcast where I'm going to speak my mind about what's on my mind, and that could be anything. Every week, I will be in conversation with an interesting person who has something to say. We're going to talk about feminism, race, writing in books and art, food, pop culture, and yes, politics. I start each show with a recommendation. Really, I'm just going to share with you a movie or a book or maybe some music or a comedy set, something that I really want you to be aware of and maybe engage with as well. Listen to the Luminary Original Podcast, The Roxanne Gay Agenda, the bad feminist podcast of your dreams, every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. For our second interview today, we're talking to actor, comedian, and producer Jenny Slate. We talked to her back in the beginning of July. Plus, in case you didn't know, her new movie, The Sunlit Night, is now available to stream in the U.S. Please enjoy the interview. Today's guest is a comedian, actor, and now a producer, too. You might know her from shows like Parks and Recreation and Bob's Burgers, the movies Obvious Child and Zootopia, or internet favorite Marcel the Shell. That's right. It's the one, the only Jenny Slate. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Wow, cool intro. <laughs> I mean, you did that, so yeah. Congratulations yes. for the intro. Like the one, the only? Yes. I mean, yes. sure. I'll take it. Are there it's many true. Jenny Slates running around Hollywood that we don't know about? <laughs> I, I hope not, because I, I hope not. But there is, I think there is another Jenny Slate who is a singer 
And she very like graciously a long time ago gave me her Twitter handle because she was on it first. Oh, um, that was and kind. I, yeah, that was really nice. Really, really nice. <laughs> I, I, I still think about that. That was like just a yeah. So I have I have Jenny Slade, and she has something else now. I don't know why, but it's really generous of her. Yeah. So congratulations on your debut as a producer on your upcoming film, The Sunlit Night. Uh, did you feel more powerful walking around the streets of Hollywood or at Sundance where the movie premiered last year? Like, oh, excuse me, producer here. You can move aside now. Gosh, I really wish. <laughs> That's a true, honest answer. No, I didn't at all. But um, And there are like many ways that one can be a producer, you know, um, our movie was filmed in Arctic Norway and in general, just to like get the equipment there and figure out how to get a crew to shoot. There was a logistical puzzle that really took, um, some genius work of Michael Clark who produced the movie. And I I did not like, you know, figure out how to get a drone into (laughs) the sky, (laughs) like, you know, (laughs) things like that. But, um, but it is nice to understand the amount of choice making that goes into making a film. And I think that will stay with me even on movies where I I just show up as um, a performer. Yeah, definitely. So like you said, the film takes place in Norway where you actually went to film during the summer. How did you cope with the sun actually never setting there? (laughs) It's funny. That's what people usually ask it with that kind of undertone of, did you go crazy? Mm -hmm. Um, But I really like the sunlight and I, when I, I usually sleep with the light on, like if my fiance isn't there, I'm very afraid of the dark. Oh, okay. I've said this a million times and you know, but I grew up in a haunted house and it was haunted and you might think that's just a scam. Um, but it's, it feels very true for me. And so anyway, I really liked the 24 hours of sunlight I don't think everyone did. <laughs> but I, I, I want to ask so many questions about this haunted house, but we lose so much of your time right now. Uh, yeah. So your character in the film, Francis, is a painter who heads out to the Arctic to try to make her art better and reconnect with herself. How did you find yourself connecting to her when shooting the movie? Um, I think Francis's central struggle of like, feeling that the world is acting on her and really not quite understanding what powers she possesses to become active and, and, um, make decisions about what gets in her path are something that I felt, you know, myself like, Oh gosh, I really, I really feel that the world is powerful. I feel that my ambitions are powerful. I'm not quite sure what my central, um, abilities are yet. And if they even match what my dreams are and like, Therefore, also, are my dreams inappropriate? Are are they just not going to come true? Um, are they just like only fantasies rather than something I'm actually on the path to like get closer towards? And and so I'm and I'm a very poor visual artist. Like I'm very very bad, um, and I've just never been able to be good. And I think that's really weird because I I genuinely do kind of like my personal taste. Uh, like I like what I like aesthetically, but if someone were like, cool, make a painting that you would want in your house, I am not able to do that. Yeah. Very fair. Yeah. I mean, same. I People who can yeah. do that are basically magicians. I feel like, oh, you yeah. took that canvas and made it into art. I went to one of those paint nights and it didn't go well. Yeah. No, um, I'm bad. I'm bad. Yeah. 
So, uh, Jenny, you recently made the decision to stop voicing the character of Missy on Big Mouth. And for those who don't know, Missy is a biracial character whose father's black and mother's white. Can you tell us a little bit about what went into that decision? Yeah, I can. But, you know, I, I will say before we speak about it, that it's something that needed to happen. It's not about me. Um, while I am not at all like, uh, afraid of it or afraid to talk about it, I don't think I should be getting any attention for it. If, if you view it as a, whatever you view it as, um, I think it should call attention to the situation at hand, um, which is, which is one that, um, many white people can um, immediately sort of like act to change. And so I think, I, as a white person, was looking around the world in the last couple of months and thinking, there's something that I genuinely don't understand, and I should understand it, and there's there can be shame and other feelings that come into that, but those are, um, at least for me, uh, the impetus to make the change. And so I looked around my life, and I could see very clearly where my reasoning was flawed and and, and racist. Um, which is, I think, a scary word for white people to say because they can feel like it means like, oh, I'm a bad person, you know, or I'm the same as the person that like drove the car through protesters. Um, and um, it felt to me it's not enough to be posting or to be protesting. What can I do? And so so that's that's what was up for me. That's that's really great to hear, especially since so many people, when they do finally like make, ask those questions themselves, they stick with the shame part. They get to, I am ashamed of X, and then they stick with that without figuring out, okay, well, how do I fix that? Yeah, and you know, your shame can so often be someone else's burden. Like right. it feels, it feels so bad to feel shame, obviously, but that can quickly go to like, I'm ashamed, you know, and please um, comfort me. Yeah, Come totally. Like, you know, if I, I, it's been interesting to me in this time to think about it just in terms of how, um, shame exists for me in my personal relationships. And that like, I know enough at this point, if I'm like, Ooh, I don't like that. I, you know, I, I, I lost my temper or whatever with my partner the way to apologize to them and make it better is not to like hang my head and be a wet blanket all week, but to sort of be like, I did that. I see what I did. I don't like that. I did it either. I, I would like to change that. I did that, but I can't. So I'll, I'll just keep changing going forward and, and, you know, like making it better. It's, it's an interesting process. And it's, it's, I think it's not just cultural or external. It's actually really internal and deeply personal. Mm-hmm. All right. So to shift gears entirely, we have to ask you about another role you used to play, Catherine, from your 2013 web series. What a delight. Right? For people out there who have not seen it. Everyone uh, should watch that. Sorry. I know you're going to give me the compliment or whatever, but Catherine Catherine is one of the best things I've ever made. It's so good. I love it. Sorry, go ahead. So so if you out there have not seen it yet, it's basically an office comedy made up of like micro episodes and it leans really heavily into that sort of aesthetic you would see in an after school special in the 80s or 90s or maybe your corporate training video. Uh, The main character, Catherine, is bizarre and hilarious. So Jenny, what was your inspiration for a character like that? And what about the whole bit made it just so funny to you? Um, I think it was, there was like, at that time, it sort of felt like, why are all the mainstream comedies like this sort of eye rolly, like everything, I don't know, everything seemed like a Verizon commercial to me. And it, <laughs> it, it seemed like every, every joke in comedy was like 
someone being like, if you don't stop doing that, I'm going to freak out. And then another person being like, um, you're currently freaking out. You know what I'm like that sort of just strange exchange where the comedy super called out. And, um, I also had been watching a lot of twin peaks and, um, I was trying to say to my partner at the time, um, there's a, there's another zone and I'm sensing it. I don't know how to like describe it, but I'll just act it out for you. And I started to act out, like improvise and act out the very first scene that you see in Catherine. I played both characters and he was like, Oh yeah, I get it. I know. I know what you're talking about. And then we started to write it together and then he developed the look and directed it and, and really, really brought it to life. Yeah. So it was a total collaboration also in that sense with with Dean Fleischer camp. Yeah. Okay. So Jenny, last question for you. Things out there are just really sad and scary and weird. What do you think the role of comedy is right now? You know, I think comedy is is often there to, um, to let things that seem strange and other be somehow close and accessible. Um, Sometimes comedy can be there to throw down the thing that feels untouchable. Um, you know, but it, it is, it is difficult because I, I think, you know, Donald Trump has really blurred the line between reality and satire. And a lot of things that would have been funny because they're so outrageous have now just occurred in reality. Um, so I think now, you know, comedy sort of functions, at least for me as a balm, um, and as a sort of flare of hope that it's not inappropriate to still be smiling or, try to find that weird underside of stuff. And, um, yeah, I, I, I think it's, <laughs> I think it is what it's always been. It's a comfort. Um, but we have to be really more careful with it than ever because it's also really powerful. That is a really strong point. Jenny Slate's movie, The Sunlit Night, will be available to watch in the U.S. on July 17th. Jenny, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. What a fun, fun time. Since that interview, Netflix has recast the role of Missy with a Black actress. Last week, they announced that the part we played moving forward by Ayo Adibri, starting with the penultimate episode of season four and throughout all of season five. That's it for today. Join us tomorrow for two more awesome classic music plot conversations with Brian Baumgartner, a.k.a. Kevin from The Office, plus a candid conversation with two gym owners on the recent CrossFit fiasco. Be sure to subscribe to News O'Clock on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you go for your sound stories. And please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It helps us figure out what you like about the show versus what you love about the show. And remember to set your alarm so you never miss an episode of News O'Clock. I'm Colleen Witt. Join me, the host of Eating While Broke podcast, while I eat a meal created by self-made entrepreneurs, influencers, and celebrities over a meal they once ate when they were broke. Today, I have the lovely AJ Crimson, the official princess of Compton, Asia. Kidding, and Asia. This is The Professor. We're here on Eating While Broke, and today I'm going to break down my meal that got me through a time when I was broke. Listen to Eating While Broke on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to our show. I'm Zoe Deschanel and I'm so excited to be joined by my friends and castmates, Hannah Simone and Lamorne Morris, to recap our hit television series, New Girl. Join us every Monday on the Welcome to Our Show podcast, where we'll share behind the scenes stories of your favorite New Girl episodes. Each week, we answer all your burning questions like, is there really a bear in every episode of New Girl? Plus, you'll hear hilarious stories like this. 
Fun that fact. was one of your things too. you brought back from Latvia. Yeah, I brought back because a hoop. all professional <laughs> basketball players. Yeah, it's like a little <laughs> seven foot hoop. Yeah, listen to the Welcome to Our Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Robert Sex Reese, host of the Doctor Sex Reese Show. And every episode, I listen to people talk about their sex and intimacy issues. And yes, I despise every minute of it. I yeah. mean, she, she made mistakes too. Right? That's I mean, true. She, she did she... kill everyone at her wedding. But hell is real. We're all trapped here. And there's nothing any of us can do about it. So join me, won't you? Listen to the Dr. Sex Reese Show every Tuesday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.